Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. She told me, she said, I don't want to go to bed yet. And I was like, why? She said, I'm scared. And I was like, why are you scared? She's like, because I've been having nightmares. And I said, Lainey, the safest place you can be is in your daddy's arms. And then that night, she told me, you said I was safe. So... That was his baby, his girl. Um. A note before we start. This is episode two. If you haven't already heard episode one, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it. This is a pretty complicated case, and you'll understand it better if you follow it from the beginning. Two weeks before Bobby Kicklighter was shot and killed in his bed in Glenville, Georgia, a similar murder happened with a similar profile one county over in Jessup, Georgia. 31-year-old father and husband, Jerry Lee Davis, was curled up asleep with his daughter when a man and a woman kicked down the door and murdered him. In this episode, we're going to speak to Jerry Lee Davis's widow, Marla, and you're going to find out how Jerry Lee Davis ties into all of this and why he and Bobby Kicklighter were targeted by an inmate at Smith State Prison, an inmate who was under the watch of Warden Brian Adams. GBI agents discovered much more involving the prison, including two more allegedly related murders. Crime and contraband in a local prison. It was a true whodunit at the time. I can't believe I'm saying this. Sent the hitman to the wrong address. All the options are on the table. We don't know. Things like this don't happen in Glenville, Georgia. I'm Evie Wilson-Weatherby, and this is Prison Town, a deep dive into one prison in South Georgia. We're using it as a case study to better understand the Georgia Department of Corrections. I'm reporting this with Jessica Salaji. After months of investigating Smith State Prison, we're going to put out one new episode each week. Marla and Jerry Lee Davis met at Walmart. He saw me in the back of the warehouse. I was trying to put boxes in the baler. And I was so tiny, I was probably like 90 pounds. And 
I was hanging off the baler trying to get the door shut. And he was like, do you need some help? And I was like, yeah, I do. I think so. So he helped me. And it was just, that was it from there. He, he asked for my number um, that night. And we were inseparable. They moved in together, had a son, Abram. And two years later, on Valentine's Day, they got married. Oh, he was my Prince Charming. He was everything a storybook could have explained. I mean, yeah, he was, he saved me. He was, he's good. They eventually had a daughter too, Lainey. Jerry left his job at Walmart, and he got a job at McDaniel Supply Company in Jessup, where he was able to work his way up. You know, he'd go to work at anywhere from midnight to two, two, three o'clock in the morning, not come home till five or six. But he made sure that he picked up any slack that I left behind and then catered to me and then spent time with his children playing games, Xbox and reading Delaney. And I'll never find a love like that. That's a once in a lifetime kind of thing. If you feel comfortable, we're going to talk about that that night. Did she remember anything strange? Was anything off? You know, as a stay-at-home mom, at this point, I'm homeschooling the kids because of COVID and everything like that. And so um, we were just always home. There was never a time that we weren't at home. And um, it, I mean, except for him, you know, he'd work or whatever. And there was nothing different um, that week at all. Um, I did notice that when he got home that night, he was more tired than usual. Um, he actually skipped his, you know, routine and was like, I've got to go to bed. And I was like, well, Lainey's asleep, you know, Lainey's tired too. So, um, you know, just take her on to bed with you, which he always, she, she went to sleep with him in his arms since the day she was born. So, um, yeah, that's, that's what they, but other than that, there was really nothing Nothing different. We did not see it coming at all. Jerry Lee Davis was murdered a little more than two weeks before Bobby Kicklighter. Can you walk me through that, that evening, that night? Um, it was probably about 9 o'clock whenever he said he was tired. He, would, he was planning on going to bed around 10, 10 30. And um, I had just gotten into resin art. My grandmother passed away. Um, that November, the November before, and um, I was making art with her flowers from her funeral, and um, I had just gotten it, so I had just broke it out, and I remember I ran into the living room, and he's sitting on the couch watching TV, and I said, we're fitting to go broke, and he's like, why do you say that? I said, because I love doing this, and he said, whatever makes you happy. The Davises had a large laundry room connected to their bedroom. This is where Marla was working on her art. So I went back in there and then came back out and he had fell asleep on the couch. And when he, when I came back in there, I was like, babe, get up, just go to bed. Go ahead and take Laney and y'all go to bed. 15, 20 minutes went by and I heard three loud booms. And you know, when you have kids and I have cats, you kind of just wait to see, you know, okay, well, what was that? And uh, then I heard, the, I heard the second boom, and I jumped up out of my chair, and by the time I put my hand on the doorknob, I heard the third boom. And 
I slung the laundry room door open and all I could see was little fireballs coming towards me. Everything felt like it was unreal. Like whenever they were shooting, I could see cotton flying out of my mattress. Um, They were in the doorway. And so the only thing I could do was throw myself on the floor to shield me. And so while I'm on the floor, I'm reaching up, grabbing onto Jerry, like shaking him, like, get up. And um, all of a sudden, Lainey comes flying over the bed and onto the floor with me. And I'm trying to shove her under the bed. And her head, she's like, my head won't fit. And I'm like, shh. Um, and they're just, you know, out of, out of nowhere, I feel this heaviness on the bed. And two shots, I believe. And then they threw him on top of us. And I put my hand on his chest and I could feel, um, I didn't feel him breathing, but um, I could hear the gurgles and the noises. And so I knew. Um, The first call to 911 didn't go through. And during that time, someone came and stood over us. Marla remembers a man and a woman that night. And her daughter remembered that the woman came back in to check on them. I don't know if she was seeing if we were dead or if, or that she didn't know that there was a baby in there. I don't know. But she come over and hovered over us. And I only know that because I felt the presence and because Lainey told me. Shortly after that, the call went through, and I was on the phone with 911, and uh, it probably took about five minutes. It felt like a lifetime. Their son had also been home, but he was in another room when all of this happened. My son comes running in while I'm on the phone with 911, and he, you know, you come in from a light space, you can see everything. Um, so he's, he fell on top of his daddy, and he's just like, is this real? Is this real? They killed my daddy, they killed my daddy. And he just fell on top of him. And then the cops showed up and... It was chaos when the police got there. Two police cars actually crashed into each other in front of the Davis's house. Everybody parked on their front lawn. Everything felt like it was unreal. And uh, I remember sitting on the ground and it's freezing outside. And I called my mom. I don't remember what I said to her. Um, I got off the phone. Everything was just, I didn't hear anything going on around me. It was literally just like I was sitting there just numb. It took the coroner until basically the next day to get there. So his death date is actually not even when he died. His death date is marked as the 14th. He died on the 13th at around 9.45 at night. Marla says that she knows who was in her house that night. She said that the man had kicked down her front door. There was a big footprint of mud. They should have had dogs in my woods. They should have, I mean, because these people are on feet. I feel like there was evidence there that they they could have gotten. I think that they blew the crime scene from the get-go. Actually, when they closed the scene, Um, and let us back in the house, we ended up finding a bullet hole that they didn't even, a bullet, um, literally that went straight through my bed into my floor and disintegrated. And they didn't, they didn't even look that far. She was never able to go back into the home that she shared with Jerry, 
it was too much for her. I couldn't even pack up or clean by myself. Everybody else had to do it for me. Yeah. The police and the Georgia Bureau of Investigation initially suspected Marla. They interrogated her at the station. One of the first questions they asked was, would it be unusual for your husband to have a pound of marijuana in his vehicle? Yeah, it would be unusual. He doesn't do drugs. He doesn't smoke. He does nothing. I had no idea. I had absolutely no idea. Immediately, it was like, okay, this this got to be gang-related or something. And um, But nothing made any sense at all. And so immediately, I get put under the microscope for that. And so I, I'm like trying to process everything. And I can't because I'm literally, they're telling me either you did it or you know who did it. What was that like in those early weeks of, you know that you're not involved. You, you're grieving the loss of the person that you've been in life. I didn't get to grieve. Um, as a matter of fact, I'm still numb. And I think that plays a huge part um, in the grieving process. Uh, I, I'll talk about it, you know, to people around me or I'll say it nonchalantly or, and everybody's just like, but I didn't get to, to cope because of what I had been through. So she wasn't allowed to grieve in those early days. As many widows know, there are so many details. You have to juggle family, plan a funeral. And during all of that, law enforcement suspected her. They tried to do a polygraph test on me. They did voice analysis. They, I mean, literally they were telling me, you did this or you know who did do it. And I didn't know anything. And so that's, that's a really gut-wrenching feeling because you're trying to rack your brain. Did, did I, did, you know, you start questioning yourself because these people are telling you you had something to do with it. So you start, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think of text messages that they may have taken wrong or just, I, I just didn't know. It's... When the GBI originally announced the two cases, the murder of Bobby Kicklider in Glenville, and the murder of Jerry Lee Davis and Jessup. They didn't clearly connect them, but they did mention the same person in the press release. Christopher Reginald Sumlin. So Jessica Salagi started digging. We'll be right back after this. TheGeorgiaVirtue.com is an online news publication based in southeast Georgia. Our daily content focuses on local government, the justice system, and public corruption. Visit thegeorgiavirtue.com to subscribe to our newsletter for the latest headlines and updates. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. For a long time, it looked like the Georgia Bureau of Investigation didn't have any leads. Jerry Lee Davis was murdered on January 13, 2021, in Jessup, Georgia. A little over two weeks later, Bobby Kicklider was killed in Glenville. When the GBI originally announced the two cases, they didn't clearly connect them, at least to the public. The crimes didn't happen in the same county, and those counties were covered by different GBI regional offices. But then in August of 2021, the GBI charged the same person with felony murder for both cases. They had charged Christopher Reginald Sumlin Jr. So who was he? This man that had allegedly pulled the trigger on both Bobby Kicklider and Jerry Davis as they slept. I should note that whenever we say Christopher Sumlin, we're really talking about Christopher Sumlin Jr. He's in his early 30s. It looks like he's about 6'3". In all of his photos, he's bald. He has tattoos that wrap around his neck and over his skull. The edge of the tattoos trace the shape of his hairline, almost like he could grow his hair out to cover it. He also has a very visible tattoo on his right cheek. It's the first thing I noticed. Sumlin has a long rap sheet. His first offense was possession of cocaine in 2007. In 2010, he had another possession charge, but this time with intent to distribute. Along with possession of a firearm by a first offender, obstruction of law enforcement officers, and some kind of weapons offense, which usually means there was an illegal weapon involved in criminal activity. He actually spent 17 months in prison for his first stint. And less than a year later, he was back in prison after a series of burglaries. He got 20 years, but he served seven. And for those last four, he was housed at Smith State Prison in Glenville, Georgia. He was released on October 5th, 2020, and granted parole exactly 100 days before Jerry Lee Davis would be shot. Christopher Sumlin Jr. was the only person the GBI charged with the murder of Jerry Lee Davis. But for Bobby Kicklider, he was one of four people charged. The GBI charged two women, Christopher Sumlin, and a man named Nathan Weeks, who was an inmate at Smith State Prison at the time of both murders. Nathan Weeks is around 27, He committed 11 armed robberies in one month back when he was 14. He's quite literally grown up behind bars. He's considered the mastermind behind all of this, but I'm always surprised by how young he looks. Nathan Weeks and Christopher Sumlin had overlapped as inmates at Smith State Prison. And as it turns out, they'd been roommates. So how are Bobby Kicklider and Jerry Davis connected to all of this? 
Christopher Sumlin Jr. and Nathan Weeks both had a connection to Smith State Prison. But did the others? Sure, Bobby Kicklighter lived in Glenville, the same town as the prison, but he didn't have a direct connection. But Jerry Davis did. After he left Walmart, he worked for McDaniel Supply Company, a company that delivered commissary to prisons each week. Commissary is whatever inmates are allowed to buy at their store. It's often snacks, Little Debbie's, ramen noodles, or it might be something related to hair or shaving, hygiene, that kind of thing. Before his death, Jerry Davis was traveling to Florida, North Carolina, South Carolina, and locally around Georgia, delivering to different prisons. He, he was top-notch at his job. So he did the schedules. He um, kind of managed over the other drivers. So he would deliver canteen and essentials to prisoners. Some of the prisons he would have to go in and actually distribute to them hand to hand. Um, other prisons, he would just drop them off and they would get distributed throughout the prison. So, and he, they, the inmates had tried before to get him, you know, involved in that kind of stuff. And She's talking about inmates that tried to coerce Jerry into bringing in contraband because he was already delivering commissary. There was somebody I was talking to and he, he said, he's like, when Jerry trains us, the first thing he tells us is that they're going to try to pull us in you know, to, to bring them in contraband and stuff like that. And he tells them straight up, do not get involved. So four people, two women and two men, Christopher Sumlin on the outside and Nathan Weeks on the inside, had been arrested and charged with the murders. But after that, there was nothing for what seemed like a really long time. And then in September of that same year, Jessica Salagi, the publisher of The Georgia Virtue, got a phone call. The person told me, you're going to want to be at this hearing. It, you know, it, it's, you're not going to believe what you hear. And I was like, I wanted to know then because I'm impatient. And um, I, I was just told to be there. So, of course, I was. This is Wednesday, September 29th, 2021. She got to the courthouse early and she remembers heightened security. We were last on the calendar. They handled a bunch of other business, which didn't take terribly long, but it meant that everyone was clearing out of the courtroom by the time we got to this case. And so they brought the accused individuals in. And at that point, it was just myself, someone from the local newspaper, and someone from a media outlet in Liberty County. The anticipation, of course, of being told, like, you need to be here. They called the case, they put the GBI agent on the stand and basically encouraged him to just tell the story of how their entire investigation unfolded. And he did. The following is from the court transcripts and a recording that journalist Louis Levine had from that day the day of the preliminary hearing for the defendants that were charged with the Bobby Kicklighter murder, Christopher Sumlin Jr. and the two women, Keisha Jones and Ariel Murphy. Your special agent, Christian Johnson, with the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, is that correct? That's correct. You're on Region 5? That's correct. 
The story started slow, the same way that the investigation, I think, appeared to for all of us on the outside who were wondering when we were going to get an update. And just very matter of fact about what he saw when he arrived um, on the kick glider home and the family and um, what little evidence they had in the beginning. He explained that he'd been working on the day of the Bobby Kicklighter murder. He actually responded to the call. The Tattnall County Sheriff's Office had asked the GBI to conduct a murder investigation. And the GBI officers were on the scene for 17 hours that day. When we arrived at the residence, we found that the side door to the residence underneath the carport appeared to have been kicked in. And there were multiple 22 caliber shell casings throughout the scene. In the back bedroom, we discovered um, the deceased Bobby Dickline um, still in his bed and it appeared that he had suffered multiple gunshot wounds. Johnson explained that they had found a COVID-19 mask near the driveway. It had a camo pattern. He said that it was in pristine condition. The dew had fallen that morning, but the mask was still dry. Um, inside of that mask, a name was written on the tag. Um, that name um, was Pat Jackson. The name Pat Jackson was written on the tag inside. The GBI compiled a list of all the Pat, Patricks, and Patricia Jacksons in all of the surrounding counties. And then they went door to door to figure out who the mask belonged to. They found the owner in Vidalia, Georgia. She confirmed that it was her mask. And she said that she usually kept it on the rear view mirror of her car, a black 2016 Jeep Patriot. And on the night of the Kicklighter murder, she'd lent her car to her granddaughter, Ariel Murphy. So the GBI tracked down Ariel Murphy, who said that she did borrow her grandmother's car and that she had passed through Glenville, stopping for gas at a gas station very close to Bobby Kicklighter's house. But she said that she was there hours before the murder, around 7.30. Bobby Kicklighter wasn't murdered until after midnight. Murphy said that after the gas station, she'd just returned home to where she lived with Keisha Jones, who was also her boss and the owner of a store called the Unique Boutique, where Ariel worked. They were really close, kind of like sisters. So the GBI requested surveillance footage from a gas station near the store. And on the night of the murder, they found that car, the black 2016 Jeep Patriot, parked outside at 9.16 p.m. The footage showed Ariel Murphy leaving the car with another woman and an unidentified black man. They got a warrant, and they searched the home where Keisha Jones and Murphy had lived. They found electronic devices, but they also found a cell phone. And there were no text messages from before, during, or after the murder. It almost looked like everything had been deleted from that time. There was no activity. But Murphy had left up an incognito browser where she had searched the following. How to delete incriminating texts. How to delete the GPS system of a 2016 Jeep Patriot and if cell phone providers could provide a record of text messages. So, of course, Agent Johnson requested those cell phone records. It took months, but when he got them, it showed that Ariel Murphy and Keisha Jones were texting with a number that linked back to an inmate at Smith State Prison. That inmate, Nathan Weeks. They had texted him about a murder-for-hire plot on a corrections officer. They'd even given his address, which was the house right next to Bobby Kicklighter's our investigation um, and, and realized that um, there was a, a conspiracy to have this corrections officer 
harmed for the purpose of removing him from seizing the contraband inside Smith State Prison. Was he and Mr. Peabody was murdered uh, because of going to the wrong address instead of the very next house? That's correct. He was an unintended target. When they got the search warrants for Keisha Jones, they were also able to find out that she was in a relationship with Nathan Weeks, even though he was an inmate at Smith State. The two had shared videos that illuminated what Agent Johnson called a potentially multi-million dollar contraband ring. It was all on social media. So it looked like these people, Ariel Murphy, Keisha Jones, and the inmate Nathan Weeks, had hired a hitman to kill a corrections officer at Smith State Prison. A corrections officer who was known for seizing large amounts of contraband. The GBI spoke with that corrections officer, and they showed him the footage from the gas station, where the unidentified black male got out of the car. And immediately, the officer recognized him as Christopher Sumlin Jr., who he had supervised at Smith State Prison when Sumlin was an inmate there. When the GBI got Sumlin's text messages, they found out how deep it really went. Christopher Sumlin and Nathan Weeks had been talking about this murder-for-hire plot. They'd shared the address of the unique boutique as the meetup spot. The night of the murder, they decided to leave their phones in Ludawisi, where Keisha Jones and Ariel Murphy lived, which is about 30 minutes from the crime scene. But a witness could place them in Glenville at the time of the murder. And that footage from the gas station? It confirmed that they were all together. And once the GBI arrested Sumlin, they were able to run a DNA test, which matched the saliva found on the camo mask that they had originally found as evidence. So the GBI charged Christopher Sumlin Jr. with felony murder. So Bobby Kicklighter was killed by mistake. They had intended to murder his neighbor, a corrections officer at Smith State Prison. But the houses looked kind of similar. They were both brick ranches, and Kicklighter and the corrections officer both drove similar-looking white pickup trucks. The house that they had intended to hit is where the corrections officer had previously lived with his in-laws, but he didn't actually live there anymore at the time of the murder. So even if they had gotten that house, who knows who they would have murdered? The craziest thing is that after the murder, Nathan Weeks actually used a contraband cell phone to text Christopher Sumlin. And he said that he was surprised because the corrections officer he thought was dead had showed up to work very much alive. I asked Jerry Lee Davis's widow, Marla, what she thought when she learned about the connection between her husband's death and Bobby Kicklighter's. It made me feel better. Uh, not that he, you know, other people died, but I mean, it's a huge relief for me because I'm like, now they can get off of my back. Um, but I knew it was more to the story. It wasn't on a, a, a on, on this super personal level, you know, like most people were thinking. Um, it was a hit job. So back to that day when Jessica Salaji got tipped off to be at the courthouse for the preliminary hearing. There were four lawyers in the courtroom that day. An assistant district attorney that represented the state and an attorney for each defendant present. One for Keisha Jones, one for Ariel Murphy, and one for Christopher Sumlin. Each attorney got to question and cross-examine Special Agent Christian Johnson. During that cross-examination, Keisha Jones's attorney, Kendall Gross, 
pushed Agent Johnson to give more details about the text messages that pointed to the contraband ring. Johnson mentioned a separate, ongoing GBI investigation. He mentioned that the people involved discussed picking things up in Jessup, where Jerry Lee Davis was murdered, and where the company he worked for is located. The person that they would have met at the location they discussed in Jessup and the things that they um, talk about picking up, we've been able to corroborate through other um, resources that that would be contraband. There were actually two different investigations going on at the same time in two different GBI offices. Christian Johnson was in Region 5, covering the Kicklighter case. Jerry Lee Davis was murdered in Jessup, which is the territory covered by the GBI's Region 14 offices. In our interview with Marla Davis, she mentioned that it was actually cell phone pings that placed Christopher Sumlin at the Davis home in Jessup, scouting the location prior and then again on the night of Jerry Davis's murder. It wasn't until Mr. Kicklighter was murdered and they found a mask on the, on the ground that led them to the home, and it literally just unfolded from there. But if it wasn't for the mask, I, I don't know. The prosecutor later linked the two cases in an indictment, charging both Nathan Weeks and Christopher Sumlin Jr. with the murder of Kicklighter and naming them both as co-conspirators that caused the death of Jerry Lee Davis. So now we know the GBI's case, that the Smith State inmate, Nathan Weeks, had allegedly worked with his girlfriend, Keisha Jones, to hire his former prison roommate at Smith State Prison, Christopher Sumlin Jr., who is now on the outside, to carry out the murder of a corrections officer that was interfering in their contraband economy. Keisha Jones allegedly got her roommate, Ariel Murphy, to drive the getaway car. And two weeks earlier, Christopher Sumlin Jr. was placed in Jessup. That's why he was arrested for the murder of Jerry Lee Davis. My children have been robbed of their whole life. My husband was actually on a hit list. Yeah, they mistakenly killed Mr. Kicklider, but he's not the face of this murder investigation. And they tried to put it on me. They tried to make it look like drugs. And I don't want that to happen. We know who Jerry was. His children know who he was. And everybody needs to know who he was. They wanted him out of the way because his job, they, at his job, they would pack boxes of the essentials and necessities and stuff like that. And then they would carry them to the prisons. So if somebody had access to that job at the shipping company that Jerry worked for, or if somebody had access to Jerry's job, they would be able to have direct access to bring goods into the prison each week. And if they could find a way to camouflage them or make them disappear into a box or a compartment, they might be able to bring in contraband, which would be worth thousands of dollars each week. Oh my God, I think um, a cell phone, one of the toss away phones I think somebody told me they go for like two grand in there that's just a little flip phone a toss away phone and when you're bringing in multiples of not just that but weapons and um, drugs and cigarettes and I mean I have no idea what what the what what that costs but just the idea of just a toss away phone being like two to three grand is just insane I mean so This is huge. 
So I think there needs to be a little bit more focus on that as well. And a list of, where, where is the list of people, the casualties? We just keep finding out, you know, that there's more deaths and more deaths and more deaths connected, but who? If you remember Marla's testimony of the night of Jerry's murder, it was a man and a woman that had broken into the home and killed Jerry. Her daughter Lainey remembered that a woman had come in after the crime, maybe to make sure that Jerry was dead. She used the word hover. We need you to understand the facts of the case before we can start exploring the system that allowed it to happen. This is a podcast about Smith State Prison and the Georgia Department of Corrections. When Marla was questioned at the police station right after her husband's murder, she was shown two photos. One she'd later recognized as Christopher Sumlin, and then one was of another woman. In the next episode, you're going to hear about this woman that Marla remembers from the night of her husband's death. Who was she? Why was she with Christopher Sumlin? What's her connection to GDC? And why did she end up murdered in June of 2021? Next week on Prison Town. The sheriff's office received a 911 call. It's been reported by some media outlets that the woman was shot. Detectives discovered the body last night and still trying to figure out what happened. And I, I know you can't speak on specifics, but I'll ask anyway. Does it look like it was a robbery or anything like that, or you just can't comment I, at all? I can't comment It'd on be that. Too soon It'd to, be too, be too soon. soon to say. Moving forward, what do you hope? I hope to shine light on where all of this started. Um, you know, that my husband was an honest, hardworking man who literally would give the last of what he had for anybody. He, he should not be in the same category as the woman who murdered him. That's what I hope. And I hope her name gets out there and I hope everybody finds out who she is and what she did and that she is not a victim. Sherry did not die because of anything I did or anything he did. He died because he needed to get out of the way. Prison Town is produced by Jessica Salaji and me, Evie Wilson-Weatherby, supported by the Center for Collaborative Journalism at Mercer University and the Georgia Virtue. Original theme song composed by Francois Byers. Story consulting by Debbie Blankenship and Tanya Ott. A special thank you to Jonathan Weatherby for the graphics and to Louis Levine. Visit prisontownpodcast.com for more information. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity 
for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier. All built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more.